All right, well, why don't we go ahead and get started. And um, so the topic tonight, as I mentioned before, is uh, sanctity of life. And uh, more specifically, we'll, we're going to talk about abortion and, and euthanasia. Um, and so just as you, know, as you heard in my prayer, uh, this is just a tremendously important topic uh, these days. Um, particularly in the, in the Western world, and, and when I say that, I mean Europe, uh, England, Canada, the United States, um, South America. That, that's what uh, historians, geographers refer to as the Western world. Um, it's just becoming worse and worse. I mean, abortion, um, yes, we've overturned Roe v. Wade, um, and, and thankfully in a lot of states, uh, such as Texas, um, abortions have been significantly restricted, um, but still, uh, they've been significantly restricted, but not to the extent that I believe Scripture demands. Um, and because we live in the United States, uh, quite oftentimes, I mean, you read in the news, you know, women are just traveling across state lines to other states where they can get them. So they're not happening in this state, but as far as in the United States goes, we haven't really slowed down abortion that much. It's just increased in some states and it's de- decreased in others. Euthanasia, again, is becoming a significant problem uh, done in the, for, in, the, in the name of mercy. Uh, same thing that happens with abortions, right? It's done in the name of mercy. I mean, you can't force these women to have these children that they didn't want to begin with. And uh, you know, if, if people don't want to live any longer, that's, that's their choice. Um, but the problem is, just like with abortion and euthanasia, um, once you go down that road, you know, you really end up opening Pandora's box. Um, and and I'll, I'll read some statistics to you tonight um, to, uh, to talk about that. And so it's, it's a topic, particularly abortion, that, that I've been very passionate about for years. I've gone to to rallies um, at the state capitol. I've met with politicians at the state capitol, uh, you know, when bills were coming up to try to encourage them to do more, yes, pass these bills that are going to limit abortion, but we need to do more than just limit abortion. We need to do more than just regulate abortion. Um, And uh, so we're going to talk about that um, tonight. And uh, I know that when I say it's hugely important, I'm I'm preaching to the choir. but human life, I mean, that's where you have to start. You have to start with recognizing that human life is incredibly valuable to God. Um, and that is because we are made in the image of God. Um, Genesis 1.27. Um, well, we'll read verse 26 with it. Then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, right there, there's your first um, indication of what that means. I mean, right there in the text, when we ask the question, what does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God? The first thing God says is, and let them have dominion. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the birds, over the livestock, over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Right. So we are, on as far as this earth can goes, we are a miniaturized version of God, so to speak. God has dominion over all of creation, over every galaxy that exists. He creates man and says, "Let him have dominion over the planet." Um. And so we act as ambassadors, so to speak, for, for God. Um, and then he says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So both men and women are equally created in the image of God. And that is so important. That's, you know, that is really important and unique to uh, Christianity. Um, unlike you know, the, uh, the fastest growing religion in the world, Islam, you know, women are truly second-class citizens. Um, they do not have nearly any of the rights that, that males have. Even their future hope of eternal life um, is, 
nothing like what males hope to get. Um, you know, a, a, a good Muslim dies, he goes to heaven, he gets like 72 virgins. And then a good Muslim woman, when she dies, she will get to go to heaven and fan one of these men for all of eternity. I mean, that's what she gets to do, according to the Quran. Um, but I guess if, if, if you're really convinced that the alternative is hell, and hell in the Quran is every bit as horrible as it's described in the Bible, I mean, if those are your choices, then that's, that's what they choose. But when we talk about Christianity, the Bible teaches that men and women before God are equal in standing, in value. We talk about the priesthood of the believers, both men and women um, are priests in the presence of God. They both have access to the presence of God. Um, men and women are created in God's, in God's image, um, which means that in some way we resemble God, um, not necessarily in our physical appearance, but our, even our physical appearance, however, to some degree conveys our Creator. And, and, and part of that just has to do with our physical makeup. You know, we are the only um, creatures on the planet that walk on two legs upright. We stand above everyone else. In terms of intelligence, we are far, uh, we far surpass the most intelligent um, animal that is out there. But not just in terms of intelligence and physical ability, uh, but in terms of um, human beings are capable of, of experiencing and expressing love and commitment and loyalty and creativity. We create art. We create music. We create sculptures. Um, you know, in terms of inventing, uh, creative, in terms of uh, inventing things as God uh, creates things. Um, all of that is what it means to be created in the image of God. Above all of that, the most important thing, what it means to be created in the image of God, is that we are able to have a relationship with our Creator, to know Him on a personal level. Um, and so because of that, it is for this reason that God commands capital punishment for murder. Um, Genesis chapter 9. After the flood, God uh, reestablishes the covenant with creation. He reaffirms the covenant with creation. Uh, we refer to this as the, the Noahic covenant. But in part of that, Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6, God says, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So this is why. Because God made man in his own image. Several things that I think need to be noted about this is that this is a creation ordinance. Um, because although this isn't the, the story of creation in chapter 9, um, it can be viewed and should rightly be viewed as a second creation, right? Um, Noah stands as a second Adam, so to speak, because the reality is there are two men that we are all descendants of, right? Adam and Noah, because after the flood, Noah starts everything all over again. Creation, it's like a reboot. The, 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 the flood is a reboot in the mind of God with creation. Adam, Noah starts um, humanity all over again. Creation starts all over again. And, uh, and so when God, just like in the garden, whatever God commands to um, Adam and Eve, by default, that pertains to all of their posterity. It's not just their children were born and then, oh, well, this was for mom and dad, but not for us because we weren't in the garden. No, it's for everybody after them. The same is true with Noah. God says to Noah that I will demand a reckoning from anyone who takes the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Human beings are so valuable that God says 
their life is required um, for murder. Um, because, um, because when we talk about the image and likeness um, uh, of, of man, first of all, those words in the Hebrew are words that are um, often repeated and they're used with regards to statues or idols, right? It's the same kind of language that we find throughout the Old Testament. Um, the idea that would have been communicated to the Israelites as they're reading the book of Genesis, as Moses writes Genesis and hands it to them, right? The idea that would have been communicated to them, you know, they just came out of Egypt where there was all kinds of statues, right? And all of these statues, all of these idols represented some greater reality, um, because that's what statues do. Um, you know, when we went into the first, uh, you know, Gulf War, for example, one of the images that was on all of the televisions uh, screens was people tearing down the ginormous statue of Saddam Hussein that stood in the middle of, of Baghdad, right? He put that statue there to remind everybody who rules over all of you. Um, Joseph Stalin did the same thing during, the, during the, the reign of the Soviet Union. He had this giant statue of himself uh, placed uh, not only in Moscow, but in various places of, of, of the Soviet Union, so that when people drove by these giant statues of Joseph Stalin, it reminded them who's in charge. Um, so when God creates Adam and Eve, the idea is that these statues remind um, each other, they remind all of creation that who is in charge is God. But again, with those statues, even though that statue of Joseph Stalin is just a statue, what would happen to the person who tried to demolish it while Joseph Stalin was still alive, right? Even though it's a statue, he would understand this is an insult against me, right? God views it the same way. Um, it, it's why we, we see um, in, in other places, for example, uh, James, when James talks about, uh, let me go to that passage. James talks about watching how we use our tongue and how we speak of other, how we speak of other people. Um, and in James chapter uh, three, um, verse nine, he says, speaking about the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God, right? So James is reminding us, look, the way you treat people, the way you speak about people, right? Understand these people are the image and likeness of God. Um, and so God places a very high value on it to the extent that he commands capital punishment. So we need to be careful with that because I have met professing Christians who want to say that they are opposed to capital punishment and they make the argument they make the argument that well we now know and we now see with advancements in DNA uh, evidence and science that you know there have been a lot of people who are on death row or have been put to death that were actually innocent um, and so for that reason I'm opposed to uh, capital punishment. What I like to remind them of is that it's capital punishment, it's not the problem, it's how we arrive at that sentence, right? It's the process. There's a reason God says in the Old Testament that when someone is put to death, they can only be put to death on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, no circumstantial evidence. And that's the problem that we have arrived to, particularly in the United States, as we sentence people to death based on circumstantial evidence. We found, you know, we found your thumbprint, we found this we found a hair and so therefore you must have done it we're going to sentence you to death god says if you don't have witnesses you can't put somebody to death right somebody has to be able to say i saw him pull the trigger i saw him shoot that person um without that um and even you know and again and it's that clear in the old testament god said the witnesses have to be able to say i've seen him commit the crime because one horrible um uh, miscarriage of justice that I read about recently. A man uh, was released from prison. He had spent like 20 years in prison. Um, he, he was sentenced to death, but he kept appealing. Uh, his case got overturned, um, and, and he, was, he was released. But the way he ended up there in the first place is that uh, there was a robbery at a convenience store. 
um, a black man goes into a convenience store and he robs he robs the store he shoots the clerk and then he runs out and he leaves and when he runs out somebody sees him running out um, a little while later down the street um, this other black man was walking um, down the walking down the street and uh, he you know got picked up by the police I can't remember the details now but he he gets picked up by a police officer for some different unrelated crime that they think you fit the description of some other unrelated crime. Pick them up. They put them in the back of the cop car, drives around. The police officer happens to see the commotion at the convenience store, so he parks. He gets out. He starts talking to the police officer there who's witnessing, interviewing the one eyewitness, and he asks him, can you describe the person that you saw running out of the, the convenience store and the one eyewitness looks at the guy in the back of the cop car and says, oh, yeah, that's him right there. But it wasn't him at all. Mm-hmm. 20 years later, they were able to prove it wasn't him at all. Um, so it's, it's that. So there's a case where there's an eyewitness, but he didn't witness the actual crime. He just he saw someone out of the store. He sees someone else in the back of the car. Looks like the guy saw. He did it. And they ended up sentencing him to death. Fortunately... Uh, he was eventually released. Yes. So we have one eye. We have one, and that's just one person, right? No, you were saying he had one eye. Oh. <laughs> oh one eye witness. One eye witness. One eye witness. I think he had two eyes. Um, but, but this, this is reinstated in the New Testament. You look at Romans 13. Romans 13, verse 4. Uh, well, we'll start in verse 3. Here, Paul is commanding us to submit to our government, governing authorities. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he, the government, this is really important for us to remember as Christians, For he, the government, our government, the United States government, right? And and this government isn't any worse than the government that Paul lived under, right? He's talking about the Roman government. This is the same Roman government that will throw Christians in jail and eventually throw them into the Colosseum and feed them to lions. He says, for he, the government, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. He does not bear the sword in vain. In biblical times, in the Roman world, the sword on a Roman soldier was used for two reasons. One, to enforce the law, right? They, they held their sword out and they would enforce the law. They would push back crowds and make people do things, right? It's, it's like having a gun, pulling your gun out. They pull their sword out. But it was also used to execute, right? They would, if you were not a Roman citizen, their choice of execution was to crucify you. But Roman citizens were given the privilege of being beheaded um, because it was quick uh, and swift. And uh, if you were a Roman citizen sentenced to death, they used a sword, right? Capital punishment. Paul says he doesn't bear the sword in vain. Um, He is an avenger of God's wrath. So capital punishment is still... Um, necessary. Of course, this isn't a lesson on capital punishment. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to drive home that human beings, human life has tremendous value in the eyes of God. So much so that God says, if one human being murders another, that person must die. It's a matter of justice. And oftentimes the argument is, you know, against those who are against capital punishment, well, but it doesn't fix anything. It doesn't bring back the person that, that was killed. So why do it? Because it's a matter of justice. Um, in other words, uh, if I, um, out of my reckless behavior, um, smash into your car, any of your vehicles, I smash into your car and I was just being reckless, maybe, you know, not me personally, but let's say someone is driving drunk. Let's say some drunk driver smashes into your car gets out and says, oh, gosh, look at the whole front of it's all smashed in. Boy, I'm really sorry about that. Here, I tell you what, here's my uh, $25 Timex watch. I'll give you my watch. We'll call it good. Does that work for you? No, of course not, right? 
that that's $25 look look at the damage right justice demands that you either need to write me a check for the amount or give me a new car that is worth equal or greater value that's what justice demands well when you take a human life what value do you place on that what is a what is the value of a human life a million dollars two million dollars a billion dollars how many years in prison what's interesting to note is that in scripture um, there is no atonement for murder uh, the sixth commandment thou shalt not murder um, there was a way of escape for manslaughter if you look at numbers 35 right numbers 35 is very specific if you accidentally kill somebody you're swinging an axe the handle flies off right or whatever um, you could flee to a city of refuge and then while you were there there had to be a trial among your peers and they would bring you out of the city of refuge they would hold a trial um, if you were found innocent well then you get to go home but if you're found guilty you have to remain in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest however long that is but you wouldn't be put to death but you could not leave the city of refuge so there's still a punishment for manslaughter it's just not murder um, but if it was intentional homicide uh, there is no atonement in scripture that person is to be put to death according to God um, the only exception the only this is interesting there's only one exception where manslaughter carries the death penalty. Exodus 21. Exodus 21. Uh, verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, she goes into labor, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So two men are fighting is the idea, and I don't know, they get too close to the woman, or maybe she tries to break it up, right? Stop beating up my husband, and she gets punched in the stomach, goes into premature labor, but there's no harm to the baby, then he shall be penalized. But look at verse 23. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, life for life. So that's, it's manslaughter, right? It's not intentional. She got in between us. We hit her. She gave birth to a stillborn child. God says he gets put to death, life for life, right? This is one of the classic this is the classic text, I think, when we talk about um, abortion being murdered because this is how God views it. This person killed the child inside the womb. It's murder, and he treats it that way. That person is to be put to death. And so the value of life begins with conception, right? Human life begins with conception. Um, Psalm 139, of course, is always a... A favorite that people go to Psalm 139 verses 13 to 16 for you formed my inward parts you knitted me together in my mother's womb I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made wonderful are your works my soul knows it very well my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now, sometimes the argument is made when we say that life begins at conception. Um, you know, if we're honest with Scripture, there's no clear text that tells us that, right? That, 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 that at the moment of conception that uh, those cells receive a human soul, and that's when life begins. However, while Scripture never clearly states that, at least not overtly, it is clear that human beings from passages like this 
are uniquely made by God. In other words, what this passage is communicating to us is that each human being is, is uniquely and purposefully and carefully put together by God. Right? Each human being is a creation of God, which means that each human being has value. It's no different than when we work on a piece of art, a painting, a sculpture. We take our time with it, right? It has value to us because of the amount of work we put into it and because it belongs to us. That's what this passage is communicating to us. It has value. Human life in the womb has value because of the amount of work that God puts into it. He doesn't just... This text doesn't tell us God just snaps his finger and says, poof, there's a, there's a baby, but that God is actively working, much like with Adam. You know, it's interesting that in creation, God simply says, let there be birds, and there they are. Let there be fish, and there they are. But with Adam, he takes the time to form Adam from the dust of the ground. When it, when it uses the language of forming Adam, in your mind, think about God taking some, some wet dirt, and he's he shapes Adam. He sculpts him. He takes his time to work on him and then breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, right? He puts work into him. This is what God is doing um, from, with Lola, right? He is, he is working on her. He's putting her together. He's taking his time. Um, human life has, has value uh, to God. Um, logic dictates that an embryo uh, is a human life, right? Because, number one, it's alive. And number two, it's growing, right? So if it's growing and it's alive, what kind of life is it? Well, it's not canine life, right? It's not bovine life. It's not feline life. So what kind of life is it? It's human life. Right? So it is a human life. It is alive and it is growing and it is developing. It is a human life. That the embryo does not look human, because you hear that. You know, well, it don't look anything like a human being. The fact that it doesn't look human and the fact that it cannot survive outside the womb for many months is irrelevant. Because if you're going to follow that line of argument... And again, what do you do with people who are, you know, horribly uh, burned or disfigured in some sort of horrible accident? Well, they don't look human anymore. What do you do with someone like the elephant man? If you remember that story from years ago, right? Because that's exactly how they treated him. He doesn't look human, so we don't have to treat him with the dignity of a human being. Just because someone doesn't look human doesn't mean they're not fully human. Just because an embryo cannot survive outside the womb, what do we do with people who cannot survive off of a breathing machine or off of a heart machine? You know, well, they're no longer human. As long as they're on a breathing machine, they're not human anymore and therefore don't have to be treated as human beings. No, of course not. And our society, at least so far, most of our society would argue that's the case. So the logic still applies. Uh, that the embryo does not possess self-awareness is the other argument. Well, he's not even aware of himself, right? Well, neither is a six-month-old. Neither is a one-year-old, right? I mean, at what point does a child begin to develop self-awareness? I'm not sure. I'm sure there's studies have been done on this, but we know that a, a six-month infant doesn't have self-awareness. Does that mean it's not human? Um, and we shouldn't treat it as a human? It's just a thing, what about the person who is in a car accident and suddenly is in a coma? They can, they, you know, they're, they're, they can breathe on their own just fine. Their heart is pumping. We just have to feed them through a tube and they're in a coma. No brain damage. They're just in a coma. They don't possess self-awareness. No one would argue they cease to be human in that condition. Right? So that's not an argument that they are not human beings. Um, in other words, it's... You know, the argument is oftentimes made, well, look, no one really knows for sure when that clump of cells possesses a spirit of its own um, and, and therefore genuinely becomes 
human in the image of God, right? And we say that because like Adam, when God formed Adam, until God breathes into him the breath of life, he's not human, right? So it, there's a clump of cells at what point, and, and the scriptures don't tell us that, right? The scriptures don't tell us that. However, we all would recognize that the deer hunter out on his own should not shoot into bushes that are rustling, right? Because if he's out on his own and all of a sudden bushes start moving, what could be in that bush? Could be a deer, could be another hunter, right? And, and it's not going to be a defense at his trial if he shoots at the bush and it's another hunter. Well, I thought it was a deer. Well, did you wait to see what came out of the bush? No, I just shot, right? When we don't know, then we give the benefit of the doubt, right? You're right. We don't know. Therefore, the benefit of the doubt is to assume life begins at conception, um, you don't shoot into the rustling bushes if you don't know. So abortion, um, at the end of the day, you know, is, is murder. It's a human being. Uh, it, it, it is a human being. And for that reason, um, it ought to be treated as such. Um, and when we talk about um, <coughs> murder today, we recognize that anyone who is involved is going to be held accountable by the law. Um, if a woman gives birth to a child and after you know six weeks she just decides, I can't handle this anymore, I can't sleep, the baby cries all, all the time, and she decides I'm going to take it someplace and, and kill the child, and she is driven out to this place by her neighbor, and the neighbor waits in the car while she goes out into the woods, they are both guilty, right? They are both guilty. No court is going to say, well, but she didn't actually kill the child, but she drove the mother out there knowing what was going to happen. And so when we talk about abortion, abortion is murder, and therefore those who are involved, everyone who's involved in it, should be prosecuted under the law. Um, of course, what do we do with some of these difficult situations, right, that people oftentimes bring up? Rape is one of them, right? Oh, wow, what do you do with rape? You know, it's a horrible situation, and it is. I, I agree. Obviously, I've never been a part of anything like that. I, um, I can't speak as a woman, um, but I can say that I've, I've seen the horrible after effects of it. When I worked EMS, um, we had to get called to the scene of a rape where the police were there, and we had to treat the victim, and it's, it's just it's, it's heart-wrenching, um, but at the end of the day, um, the baby should not be held responsible for the father's crime. Even the Bible says that, right? Children cannot be held guilty for the sins of their parents. Um, that is the same situation. Um, and although that is a horrible situation to be in, the child is innocent. The child did nothing wrong. Um, and so it... In that case, the human, the, the child growing in the womb is his own person. Um, what do you do about incest, right? That's always brought up too. They always want to make exceptions for rape and incest. Well, incest is a horrible situation that does occur. I did do some research. There is no harm that will come to the child. Not with one. Right. If you continue, um, there are studies that show that you know if you continue the incest within a very small circle of family members, you can start to have some serious physical and mental problems. Um, but the articles that I read said that there, when it happens once, there is a very, very, very minute chance that there's going to be anything wrong with the child. Um, oftentimes, the reason they throw that in there. It's just the, it's the psychological uh, struggle of carrying a child that belongs to dad or to the brother or to the uncle or whatever the case may be. Um, but it does not pose any significant um, risk. You also hear, uh, well, we want to make exceptions for the life of the mother, 
right? We want to make exceptions for the life of the mother. Um, again, uh, I did some research. I found a medical um, article um, uh, titled uh, Six Scenarios Where Abortion Can Be Life-Saving. First of all, I thought the title was interesting. Six Scenarios Where Abortion Can Be Life-Saving. This was uh, everydayhealth.com. And uh, they go on to say in the opening paragraph that there are six common reasons why abortion can be medically necessary. To me, I just thought that wording was interesting. Can be. Either something is or it isn't medically necessary, right? But they want to make, they want to make, they want to say that it, it, there are six scenarios where it can be. Okay, let me read on. Um, They go on to say, uh, that there, they, in five of these six, as I read the article, in five of these six, there is an increased risk of death for the mother. There's an increased risk. Um, and these were pulmonary, so in a pregnant woman, pulmonary hypertension, preeclampsia, kidney disease, a pregnant mother diagnosed with cancer, uh, lethal fatal anomalies, and ectopic pregnancies. So those are the six that they list. What I found interesting is that ectopic pregnancy was the only one that they said the mother will die or the child, right? It's it's one or both. Um, But the baby cannot develop in the fallopian tube. Um, It won't even get to a viable stage where they can take the baby out, right? There is just, unless God is going to somehow supernaturally detach the baby from the fallopian tube and move it to the womb. There's no way around that. But with all of these other ones, they were all treatable. They were all treatable. And in most of them, it only slightly increased the risk of death. The highest one was pulmonary hypertension. It said that you had a, the woman had a 50% chance of dying um, with pulmonary hypertension. But with all of the other ones, um, for example, with uh, kidney disease, um, it, she, her risk of dying increased to 6%, right? Uh, so it, it only slightly increased. Um, so when they talk about the life of the mother, there is really only one situation where truly the life of the mother um, is uh, at risk. Um, the chances of ectopic pregnancy, according to the article, is 1 in 50. That, that is uh, the rate in the United States. It's, it's 1 in 50 uh, are the chances of ectopic pregnancy. So here are some startling facts and that I found when I was doing some research for this. Is in 2021, there were approximately 4.3 million pregnancies reported in the United States in 2021. Thus, if you go with the chances of ectopic pregnancy, 1 out of 50 we would expect approximately 87,000 ectopic pregnancies in 2021 in the United States. However, there were 626,000 abortions in 2021. Thus, roughly 539,000 abortions in 2021 were for non-life-threatening scenarios. Um, most of them, people choose to do it. Uh, it's not actually to save the life of the mother. And again, as I said before, as with all murders, those who participate in the murder of an unborn child should be prosecuted. Sadly, what you hear a lot of pro-life organizations saying is we're passing this bill where the doctor can be persecuted, the medical staff can be persecuted, the hospital, but the mother gets to go free. Um, you know, why is that? Um, what, you know, why, why, why do we want to give that, that kind of exception? Well, here are typically the responses that you hear from a lot of people. Um, one, this is a very difficult decision for the mother to make. I mean, you know, she's, women who have abortions, it's not an easy decision. They wrangle over it. I mean, it's just they've already been under a lot of psychological stress and emotional stress. And then to threaten them with, you know, prosecuting them, you know, it, it's, it's, it, they've been through enough. Because they celebrate it. But here's what I would say. 
Yes, but deciding to murder somebody is usually a difficult decision. Right? Unless it's a crime of passion um, or you're on drugs or something. Um, but if it's premeditated, which abortion is premeditated, right? You have to think about it. You have to plan it. You have to make an appointment. Um, and so, yes, I'm sure it was a difficult decision uh, to make. That doesn't justify their actions. Um, it seems less of murder and more of a medical procedure. I mean, you know, she made an appointment, she went to a doctor's clinic, uh, but where or how the murder takes place is irrelevant, right? We know in Nazi Germany, a lot of Jews were put to death in clinical environments because they were experimenting on them. That doesn't make it less murder. Um, it is a human life. Um, and only God has the right to take human life or to give permission for when human life could be taken. Um, again, the other five medical scenarios, you know, um, um, what do we do about the other five medical scenarios? I mean, okay, so the other five that were listed, it's not a guarantee that the woman is going to die. It increased their, their, uh, their chance of death, particularly with pulmonary hypertension, right? You have a 50% chance of dying. What do you do with that? Here's my take on that. I think some grace can be given there um, only because uh, particularly if you're an unbelieving um, mother, if you're an unbeliever, that might be a very difficult decision to be faced with. You could die, right? Um, if you're a believing Christian woman, uh, it's like, well, if I die, I'm going to heaven. Um, and so I'm not worried about dying. Um, so maybe some grace can be given. There. And when I say grace given there, I'm not saying allowing for it, uh, but maybe not prosecuting um, for it in those situations. Um, but, but even still, those situations are rare. I mean, it, it is rare for a woman to be diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension during pregnancy. If you look at, I didn't write them all down, but I did some research and all of those are rare. They don't, they don't, they don't come anywhere close to equaling the number of abortions that take place in the United States every year. Nowhere close. The vast majority of them are simply because this is an inconvenient time for me. I just don't want to have this child. Or, or they think it might be born with, a, with an abnormality, deformed or something like that, and I'm just going to abort the child. Some make the argument that you can't legislate morality. Well, that's true, but you can regulate it. Right? I mean, yeah, you can't, you can't make people into moral people by passing laws. But you can regulate morality, and we do it all the time, right? There's a reason why we have laws that say you can't steal other people's stuff. I mean, that, that's a moral issue, right? We have laws that say you can't just assault someone, physically assault them. You can't walk up to someone on the street and punch them in the face and get away with it, right? We, we regulate morality all the time. So when it comes to abortion, yes, we may not be able to legislate it, but we can regulate it, and we ought to regulate it. Euthanasia. Um, in Canada, which is a country that many in the United States want to emulate, uh, I don't know if you've been following what's happening with euthanasia in Canada. It is becoming a nightmare. Um, there was a law passed in 2016 originally, and the law required um, now if you were going to be if you were going to um, go into a, a clinic or a hospital and ask them to basically euthanize you, um, the law required that natural death had to be reasonably foreseeable and the patient's medical condition had to be grievous and irremediable. It can't be fixed. I'm, I'm in a, a horrible amount of pain and I am going to die. That's the diagnosis. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to die. And that's what the law required. In 2021, the requirement that death be reasonable foreseeable was dropped from the law. Today in Canada... Anyone over the age of 18 with a serious illness, disease, or disability can be euthanized even if they are otherwise healthy. Even if they're otherwise healthy. Some tragic stories have come out of it. Uh, over the age of 18. And they're actually debating in Canada whether or not a minor can request to be euthanized. Yes, it's assisted suicide. 
Mm -mm. But that's, that was all about if you were over 30, that you went into a lottery and they shot you into some space thing where yeah. you were a target, <laughs> right. you know, by all the people under 30. Right. Yeah. So the way the law is written now in Canada is that you could suffer from, you could suffer from, um, 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 oh, what am I thinking of when your hands, what? Arthritis. And you can go in and say, this is so excruciatingly painful. I can hardly walk. I can't use my fingers. I just want to be put to death. And okay, you're, you're, of a, you're of a sound mind and it's your life, it's your body and, and we'll do it. Um, here's two stories I thought I would share with you. Alan Nichols, a 61-year-old man with a history of depression who in 2019 was briefly hospitalized because it was thought he might be suicidal. Within a month of his hospital stay, he requested euthanasia and was killed, despite protests from family members who said he simply was not taking his medications and did not have the capacity to make the decision to die. This is a direct quote from the article. Quote, his application for euthanasia listed only one health condition as the reason for his request to die, hearing loss. He said, I have hearing loss. I want to die. And they said, okay. And they put him to death. Here's another one. A quadriplegic woman said that she applied for MAID, which is what they call this program, Medical Assistance in Dying. MAID. A lot of people have said that, you know, there's a secondary meaning there. It's like the government of Canada is wanting to clean up all of the undesirables, right? Uh, MAID, Medical Assistance in Dying. A quadriplegic woman said she applied for MAID because it was easier to get government support to die than to get government support to live. She applied for the Ontario Disability Support Program, where they give her money and, and assistance, right? She applied for the Ontario Disability Support Program and was told over the phone that it would take six to eight months for her application to be approved. She could, however, get made in 90 days. So, right, right. In 2021, uh, in Canada, 10,000 Canadians were euthanized in 2021. That's up from 1,000 in 2016. When the law was originally passed, the way it was worded, they put to death 1,000 in 2016. In 2021, 10,000 were euthanized, and that number is simply going up. Pretty much, pretty much. The bottom line is, when we talk about euthanasia, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, forbids the unjustified taking of human life, including our own. Including our own. Right? So that's the theological argument, not only against euthanasia, but against suicide. People ask, I've had people ask me, is suicide a sin? Is murder a sin? Well, yeah. You're not allowed to murder any human being, including yourself. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to take human life unjustifiably. And what makes it justified? God does. He gives certain exceptions, right? Um, really only two. One, capital punishment for murder. And the other is in defense of war, right? And then there's the whole just war uh, theological argument that begins with Augustine and we're not going to go down that road. But uh, I, I do think the just, the, the just war um, um, argument is, is, uh, is valid. I think it's biblical. Um, I do think Christians can be soldiers, and they can be involved in a just war. Um, but those are the exceptions. I mean, suicide is, is murder. Euthanasia is murder, and the Sixth Commandment applies in those situations. Only God has the right to take human life or to permit that human life be taken. Abortion and euthanasia in the end are both symptoms. Abortion and euthanasia are both symptoms of the same underlying problem. And that is an overinflated view of the autonomous self. Yes. Talking about, I have never 
never come across that. So what what defense are they trying to make by saying that it's... They're talking about a passage in, in the Old Testament where a woman um, is accused of being unfaithful to her husband that uh, and of, 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 of committing adultery. And, um, but she wasn't caught in the act. He just, he suspects it. And so she is brought into uh, the priest and she's brought into the temple, uh, into the temple courtyard. Um, and she is made to drink um, a certain concoction that is put together. Um, and her hair is let loose and, uh, and she's made to drink this concoction. And the Hebrew language is very difficult to understand there. And maybe somebody can find it um, where it is. Numbers chapter 5, starting at verse 11. Numbers 5, 11. Oh, people who use that one a lot. <laughs> yeah, because I was like, I have never come across this. I've read it. Right. Yeah, the test for adultery, Numbers 5, 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, if any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, <clears throat> if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, uh, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, since she was not taken in the act. And if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest, and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it, put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain um, offering of remembrance, uh, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near. And set her before the Lord, and the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel, and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle, and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord, and unbind the hair of the woman's head, and place it in her hands, uh, and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand the priest shall have the water of bitterness. That brings the curse. So, what's interesting is that it's holy water, and it's basically dirt off of the ground of the tabernacle or the temple, and that's what she's going to drink. Verse nineteen. <clears throat> then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, "If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanliness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray," though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself in some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into the bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away and the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Okay, so right there, first of all, the ESV, I appreciate the fact they're doing a very good job of just translating it literally. There are some other translations that want to take liberty with it, and uh, they want to try to make the argument that somehow this concoction, which is just holy water and the dust off the ground of the temple, um, along with the curse that I guess it was a supernatural event would cause a spontaneous abortion if the woman was pregnant. Because when you read the language, um, your thigh fall away and your body swell. And then it goes on to say, uh, pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. You know, that, that language, what does that mean, your thigh fall away? Um, there are some liberal scholars who want to take that Hebrew word for thigh and say, well, really what is, I think what is being meant there is that the fetus is going to fall away. Her womb is going to swell. The fetus is going to fall away because the word that is being used there is a word that can simply refer to flesh, but um, it often is translated as thigh. Um, for example, when um, um, 
Abraham, Isaac, uh, one of them, uh, swears an oath to his father, and he says, put your hand on, on my, the, my inner thigh, right? That's the same word that is being used there. Um, so the question is, is it, is it flesh? Is it a piece of meat? Is it some part of her body? I mean, what does this mean that your thigh will fall away, right? The Hebrew is really unclear. So the reality is, we don't really know what that means. Um, verse 28. Um, da, 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 da. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. Right. Um, she shall be free and she, if she is not unclean. In other words, she'll be able to go on and have children. I never understood it to mean that she, they forced her to miscarry. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh-uh. Right. Just no. She's had intercourse with the man that's on her husband. Right. Right. Yes. Right. Genesis 24. And I, you know, there's that, you know, Abraham and his servants, you know, where he puts his his hand under his thigh. Right. It pertains to specifically about marriage. Right. An oath regarding arranged marriage. So. As best as we can tell, and I've, I've, I've looked at this passage many times before because, yes, I've heard the argument as well. Um, as best as we can tell, this is something horrible is going to happen to her, you know, right? This is, it's, it's a curse, right? And, it, and it's a supernatural thing because all she's drinking is, is dust off the ground and holy water. So it's really a supernatural, it's God who's going to do this ultimately and not really the drink itself because he doesn't put anything else in it. Um, and the idea is that if you're guilty, when you drink this, something horrible is going to happen to you. Um, so why why did this why did this why did this work? It it may be that at this point the woman would just confess, right? Like I'll just all right, I'll come clean because yeah, I don't know. This sounds horrible, whatever this is. But but the ESV is just translating it literally, which I appreciate because some other translations don't. Um, they, they, they tried to have it make sense as to what's happening, but we just have to be honest and say we don't really know. Her thigh will fall away. Not sure what that means. Um, so this is where they go, um, Kim. And it, it is pointless. It is an extremely weak argument. God never condones abortion. This is not some form of abortion that is happening here. This is not an... Uh, um, um, uh, uh, you know, some sort of drug that induces um, a, abortion. So, yeah, that's where they get it from, and I think I think that's a weak argument. Um, in in the end, uh, abortion is 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 murder um, because it's a human life, and it ought to be treated. It ought to be treated as such. Now, of course, of course, there's a double edged there's a there's a double edged sword there, right? There's a there's there's a two pronged approach that as Christians we ought to take. On the one hand, yes, we need to be arguing in the courts. We need to be pressing our politicians we need to be pushing for you know abolition of abortion i mean abortion should be by and large excuse me outlawed except to truly save the life of the mother um and and those and that is rare um but the other side of that is that ultimately what people need is the gospel right ultimately what people need is christ and, and we, can't, we can't forget that. It's not just pushing legislation. In the end, we need to be pushing people's hearts and minds with the Word of God um, because that's, that's what our country needs more than anything. That's the only thing that's going to bring an end to abortion and euthanasia um, in Canada. And what's frightening is that, like I said, there's a lot of people in the United States that are looking at what's happening in Canada with euthanasia, and they want to see that here. Now, we do have euthanasia laws in the United States, some states more liberal than others, but nothing near as extreme as what they have going on um, in Canada. But as I said, all of this is really just a, a symptom of the same problem. It's an overinflated view of the autonomous self. In the end, human beings believe, I am my own God, right? I am my own God. This is my body. I do what I want with it, um, if I'm a woman, whatever's inside of it, I get to do what I want. And uh, male or female, if I want to end my life for no reason other than my satellite 
television got cut off. That's it. I want to die. I don't want to live anymore. There's a lot of people who think you should, you know, it's your life. If you want to end your life, you should be able to do that. But we don't have the right to do that because this body ultimately does not belong to us. Whether you're a believer or not, this body does not belong to us. It belongs to God. That's right. It got cursed. Got cursed in the fall. Because I think it, in the end, it comes down to people aren't really trying to do what's best for the baby. Right. They're not really trying to do what's right. They're really not even trying to be logical. Yeah. Uh, they're just ultimately saying, it's your body. You do what you want. And yes, yes, that's that's part of the frightening thing. What's happening in Canada, too, is uh, recently a law has been passed that said that those who want to euthanize themselves can designate, right before they do it, they can designate whether or not they want to donate their organs and they can have that done there, right? Because so, because what's happening in, in Canada is that prior to that, um, you know, prior to that, uh, that, that, that law wasn't in place. Like it had to have already been settled before. You couldn't do that at the clinic. But now they've done it at the clinic, and they're encouraging people. Oh, before you do this, let's let's harvest your organs. Um, and so, you know, because Canada is realizing the more and more people that are euthanizing themselves, they're going to lose out on all of these organs. And these are perfect. A lot of them are really healthy people that are putting. It. So, it's it's almost a way of the government being able to harvest organs. Um, yeah, socialized medicine. People right. waiting months and months and months for an organ they need yes. to live. Right. Well, here's, 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 like yeah. here's, here's the solution. Yeah. Here's the solution. Here's the solution. This person wants to die. He's got good good organs. Let's let's have your organs, and we'll put you to death so that someone else can can use your body parts. Um, so in the end, I mean, human life, I think you know, is sacred to God, and it must be protected. Um, you know, at, at, at all costs. I mean. Um, within biblical means, um, it must be protected and fought for. But we need to be careful as Christians that we don't buy into a lot of these false arguments that the world gives us and start to expand the biblical reasons why life can be taken, right? Or why we have the right to take human life. Because Christians are notorious for doing that. We, we expand it where it's convenient for us or for our our opinions or our point of views, uh, and ultimately, we're not any better than uh, the unbelieving liberals out there who want to kill children uh, simply because they're in, in an inconvenience. Mm-hmm. Were you going to say something, Karen? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, for the, um, the numbers to like, maybe shed some light, when it uh, passed, when it was passed, Right. Yeah, there's no way to know that from the text. Right. I mean, we just, we just, there's not enough information there um, for us to know really what that's talking about. And so it's a weak argument. You can't base a strong argument on a very unclear text. Um, Like it's like back in the days of witchcraft, they would 
drown them, and if they died, then they were a witch, and if they survived, they right. or, or whatever it was. It's just kind of like that doesn't make any sense. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Spiritual things are discerned by the spirit. That's right. An unbeliever trying to take scripture and say it doesn't work. Yeah. Good yeah. look at it. Say it's impressive. Mm. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for pointing me to that. Right. All right. Well, let's uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we um, we thank you for your word that guides us and instructs us, Lord. We pray that you would um, help us to be faithful to it. We pray that you would give us the strength, the courage, the boldness to be uh, uh, champions of, of human life, of all human life, Lord God. All human life is valuable, and um, you know, and I and I know that uh, women who find themselves pregnant, especially through difficult circumstances, this can be very tough for them. And you know, people who struggle with debilitating disease, life can be very difficult for them. And so, Father, we pray that um, as your church, as your people, uh, we pray that you would give us the wisdom uh, to speak grace into these individuals' lives. Uh, to not be judgmental, uh, but to help them see that that their life has value to you, that the life of their unborn child has incredible value uh, to you, Lord God. And, uh, and Father, we just pray that you would help us to be uh, salt and light in this world, to direct people's attention toward Christ, uh, because ultimately uh, the gospel is the only true solution to the problems of abortion and euthanasia. And uh, Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.